The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest today is Chris McKaylee. Hi. Uh, three hats, right? Lobbyist, law professor, and now author with Lobbying and Advocacy in California. And that's the shameless plug I'm giving. So <laughs> I appreciate um, it, John. It looks like a great book. What prompted you to write this book or to edit this book? Excuse me. Well, my co-editor and co-author of a number of chapters is a longtime uh, lobbyist, Ray LeBove, mm-hmm. who's been in the business probably twice as long as I have for almost 45 years. And, you know, he's been teaching a uh, seminar for the last decade. He calls it Lobbying 101 and 201. And he asked me to join him in uh, teaching the regulatory advocacy a couple of years ago. And he and I started talking after some of the seminars about Um, the limited number of books that are out there to educate lobbyists, sort of a how-to, not just war stories, if you Mm -hmm. will, which a lot of the books are. And in doing some research in libraries, on the web, et cetera, found that there's really nothing on California other than um, uh, one called The Third House that was written by uh, J. Michael, Dan Weintraub, and Dan Walters. Oh, wow. Uh You know, maybe 25 years ago or so. Uh Uh, but nothing like this type of book that we had envisioned. Uh-huh. And, and this is almost like a textbook. In a way, I mean, it is certainly uh, targeted, we hope, at uh, colleges and universities that teach like California government. Uh, McGeorge has a whole capital lawyering program that we hope it'll be utilized there and a number of other schools. But also, in many ways, I think it would be beneficial to our colleagues in the third house, for example. Uh, We talk about some specialty areas of lobbying, including lobbying at the PUC, the CTC, Mm -hmm. um, and some other areas, for example, that maybe a lot of lobbyists don't have any experience in. Now, reading a chapter in a book, obviously, is not going to make you an expert in a particular area, but at least it might expose you to some of that. Do you run into people that are clamoring to be lobbyists that want to be lobbyists or they have this sort of romanticized vision about what lobbying the state capital is all about well i'm not sure about romanticized because it's so (laughs) because it often has such a negative connotation unfortunately but uh we certainly field uh, a lot myself and many other lobbyists my colleagues uh often have coffees particularly in the fall with yeah uh, legislative branch employees, executive branch employees who have some interest in maybe, you know, getting into the sure. lobbying field. Um, I've given talks over the years to students at USC, at Sac State, at UC Davis, uh, certainly at McGeorge, mm-hmm. at Bolt Hall, and other places over the years where you have either uh, poli-sci students, law graduates, and others who are very interested in the lobbying what field. What kind of questions? Do you recall any interesting questions that some of the students... Well, I think the standard other ones than how are... how much can I make? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First I <think> question. <laughs> that sometimes... It, usually it's, you know, what do you actually do? Or I've interacted with lobbyists. It seems very interesting. What's uh-huh. a day-to-day life yeah. uh, like? Um, often it is, how do I get into it? Uh-huh. Right, uh, because there isn't a degree 
in it. There's no specialized training, really. I mean, the only required things is the registration and every two years, the ethics course. Otherwise, you can pretty much call yourself a lobbyist without having yeah. to have any formal education or yeah, other things. Yeah. So you often get a, in the old days, you just had to you get registered in the lobbying directory and submit a photo, correct? Well, and, and pay the, the fee, yeah. the yearly fee. And as I said, every two years, you have to take a two-hour ethics course. Okay. So it's pretty limited. Yeah. At, it's pretty much the same as it has been the last yeah. few decades. I think um, just having observed the Capitol now for many, yeah. many, many years, sure. it seems like some of the most effective lobbyists are also attorneys. The language of the legislature is obviously drafting bills, for example, being able to analyze bills. It's very... Uh, uh, it's very common. I, I know many lobbyists who are also lawyers. Some sure. who aren't, of course. Uh, but I know some in your in your book are. Uh, many of them authors. are, and many of them are not. Yeah. I always like to say um, it certainly isn't a negative to have a law degree, yeah. but clearly some of the top lobbyists are not lawyers, and some of them are. Sure. So I don't think it's uh, required. But anyways, so Ray and I started talking about it, and I said, Ray, I'm sure you've got a lot of. Um, you know, thoughts and resources, and he's done little papers over the years for his courses, and I've written a number of articles over the years, including for Capital Weekly on a lot of lobbying things, including one on trying to find a lobbyist job a couple of years ago and everything else. And as we started getting into it and looking at some chapters, we realized, hey, this is a pretty daunting you know, uh, exercise for us to try to do it all by ourselves, number one. Number two, yeah. in giving us some thought, we also figured, you know, is really a an effective book or textbook yeah. just the lobbying world according to two people? And so as an outgrowth of that discussion, we thought, hey, what if we turn to some of our colleagues in the lobbying profession and a few others? In fact, some of the opening... Um, chapters are on like the legal aspects of it. And once you're a registered lobbyist, what are the laws? What are the prohibitions? So we have some political law mm -hmm. lawyers. At the tail end, we talk about uh, other influences on the legislative process, including like the role of media, grassroots, and even legal challenges. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when you, do, you, know, you talk about registration, yeah. um, I remember we did a story a number of years ago on deregistration. Mm -hmm. on not registering for a period of time for whatever reason, and then re-registering yes. again. Right. Uh, you're still in the capital or near the capital, but you're not registered. What are the advantages of temporarily deregistering, or are there any? And well, then, I think there are two major ones. One is the need or the lack of a need to file your quarterly report. Uh -huh, okay. Remember, since 1974, since Prop 9 was adopted, lobbyists have to disclose every quarter who their clients are, yeah. what they worked on, and how much they got paid. So if you're not registered to lobby, you're not disclosing who your clients are, what you're working on, or what you're getting paid. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that there are limitations, including, for example, a prohibition on contingency fee payments. A lobbyist, by law, cannot do any sort of contingency fee arrangement. Uh, it's a felony oh, for that. both parties. Uh -huh. okay. So none of those prohibitions apply if you're not a lobbyist. Uh -huh. And the, the last item really is also the gift law. You know, lobbyists are prohibited from making a or arranging a gift in excess of $10 in any calendar month. So if you're not a registered lobbyist, you can invite an elected or appointed official to 
you know, a lunch or a dinner that uh-huh. costs twelve bucks or twenty five dollars. Is there now, there's still there's still a maximum of about five hundred dollars. Uh, so it's not like you can go wild, even if you're not a lobbyist. Yeah. But the point is, is that you're not subject to that ten dollar prohibition. So. Although for Capital Weekly, that's going wild would be <laughs> that's going wild. <laughs> well, um, it may it may have been fine in 1974, but yeah. obviously it hasn't quite caught up. Uh, is there a difference between uh, the federal lobbying at the federal level, lobbying at the state level? Uh, I know that there are some firms based in Washington mm-hmm. that have representatives in Sacramento. That is true. Uh, several of the large firms. Several large firms. And a um, number of the law firms. Do you have, uh, are there people that specialize only in the feds, people that specialize only in the state? Um, well, I mean, if you specialize at the federal level, you're working in D.C. on a regular basis as yeah. opposed to being here in Sacramento. I mean, although there are so many members of the California delegation in D.C. that many of us know because they're former state legislators, oh, yeah. it seems mm-hmm. silly to me to hire somebody here to do Washington lobbying sure. and vice versa. Yeah. So, But I think a lot of those national firms are hopeful that if they represent, you know, X, Y, Z and D.C. that they might be able to work for them in Sacramento and perhaps vice versa. Uh-huh. So. Um, the A few years ago, I remember there was a trend. I never really followed up on this, but there was a trend of D.C.-based firms wanting to open shops in Sacramento because mm-hmm. of the basically the size of the state. There's a lot going sure. after. What happens here may the or may not. The sixth largest economy in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is, is that still happening or, or is that... Something that's, is that a trend that's over, has seen it today, or do we still have a lot of... There are a handful, but I don't think that for any of them it's really worked out to the level that they had probably uh-huh. originally okay. thought. And I think that despite our economic size, yeah. Sacramento is still a proverbial small town. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, well, We don't have the, uh, the military budget, I think, is, as I recall, a huge part of the lobbying back there in D.C. is military... Or oh, sure. defense, defense spending related. But you also have such a large number. I mean, you have over 12,000 Capitol Hill staffers and 10,000 wow. <laughs> oh, lobbyists. God, really? In Sacramento, we have a maximum of maybe 2,500 yeah. legislative employees, and you have, you know, 1,400 or so registered lobbyists. And of it's those, a smaller universe, yes. Of those registered lobbyists, how many of them are actually fairly active? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are registered lobbyists, but really are either lobbying for a very limited number of clients or maybe even one client that really not down there. How many are are cl- close to full-time? Well, I've always thrown around... I don't have an exact number, naturally, but I would always usually say three, 400 of those are full-time regularly at the state capitol. Recognize that there are a handful who do exclusively some of the regulatory agencies that require registration, such as those mm-hmm. who specialize in the PUC. By the way, why is that? I've noticed that. Why is that separate? Why is there a separate requirement that you register, if you're a lobbyist, that you register as lobbying the PUC? Why is that? Well, the the definite, essentially, the legal definition of lobbying is you're paid two thousand dollars or more in a calendar month to influence legislative or administrative action, uh-huh. okay. and the way the FPPC defines. Legislative action is what you would expect, lobbying for or against a bill, resolution, constitutional amendment being considered by the state legislature. That's easy. Uh-huh. 
But then the administrative action is generally defined as the rulemaking activities of agencies. So, you know, we have upwards of 200 agencies, departments, boards, and commissions in the state who have, who can promulgate regulations, i.e. they have rulemaking authority. And so that you have to register, assuming you have a paying client to do that. And so it's all disclosable, et cetera. But my point is that there are, of those 1,400 odd registered lobbyists, there are some who just work on the administrative agency side. The vast majority, of course, work in the legislative branch lobbying, but there are those who specialize in one or two state agencies. Um, I was looking at some numbers of registered lobbyists over the years, mm-hmm. and it uh, since two thousand between two thousand five two thousand fifteen, I saw a story, sort of a data collection story that Jim Miller and the B had done. Okay. Um, and there was a, a gradual rise in the number of lobbyists. I think they went to 1825 or 1850, then went 1760. Yeah. Um, is it going down now, going up, or is it up and no, down? it's probably still about that number. About I guess I have to update my 14, 1500 and get back up to the 1700 or so. Oh. But I'd still say it's, you know, three or 400 who yeah. have a regular presence in the state capitol and all. Sure. Because there are some people who you know, register only because they have, um, you know, a very specialized area or they only care about, you know, issues before a particular committee. But because of how much they do and what they're paid, they have to be registered. Is it really a lot of fun? I mean, do you go out to parties and have a lot of fun and, you know, (laughs) like Tim and I do all the time? Yeah. (laughs) Well, obviously with the networking, there is a, an important social aspect to it, but it's certainly, there is the proverbial party circuit, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, when the legislature's in session, because you might have drinks or dinner with a legislator or their staff. And certainly there's the proverbial fundraising circuit, but um, you know, there's a lot of uh, work that goes into it and the relationship building and the social aspect is yeah. but one of it, yeah. one of them, yeah. There used to be a reporter at the B. Yeah. Um, many years ago, his initials are John Berthelsen, but um, he covered right. lobbyists. He was okay. the only lobbying, only reporter I knew that covered lobbyists full time. Just a lobbying time. profession. Oh, yeah. interesting. And it was a great beat. He had a great time at it. I don't mm-hmm. know. They ultimately closed it down for whatever reason. Okay. But uh, while it lasted, he had a great time. And he did a lot of good stories. The thing was, I think, uh, I think it's true that nobody knows the capital the way the lobbyists know the capital. You have to have information. It has to be accurate. You have to know what the issues are. Uh, you got a lot of balls you're juggling at the same time and are great sources if and when you want to talk, which isn't that often. But, you know, uh, so I think it was a good idea to have them be. And I wish somebody was doing it now. I yeah. offer to do that, but we don't We do not do that. But you it's too that. bad. It's good be. You know. <laughs> yeah. It could be interesting, definitely. When you write a book like this, uh, edit a book, write and edit a book yeah. like this. Are you encouraging competition for your own profession? I mean, uh, here you are, a lobbyist. You want people to more lobbyists out there. So does that make you provide a little more headwind for you than you otherwise might might not have? Uh, you know, as the lobbyist, as the number of lobbyists has grown, it's amazing that there have continued to be the work and the clients who need representation. Um, You know, we've seen over the last decade, for example, the tech sector has grown. Uh When I first started lobbying 20 years ago, there were maybe two or three companies that had any sort of representation in Sacramento. 
and now there are you know dozens of companies that do um and we live in a highly regulated state uh some professions and industries clearly uh it's appropriate to have the amount yeah. of regulation but that means that you have to have people uh on the ground here in Sacramento monitoring what the legislature is doing what those rulemaking bodies do as you know we've we have more than a thousand new laws every year basically being enacted and we have anywhere from five to six hundred new regulations every single year being adopted and so we are you know i've i've certainly been one who complains about the bill factory of the capital but which you track yeah uh, in meticulous detail (laughs) (laughs) oh it's one of those uh fun things I've been doing over the years. At first, it started out uh, just for my own benefit and my clients. And, Uh you know, as I talked with more people and shared the information, uh, more and more people began asking about it. And, hey, how many many bills have been introduced this year? And how many reached the governor's desk? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So Um, it's sort of a fun hobby. Why? uh, I notice every now and then in the Mm -hmm. lobby registration in the roster, that some lobbyists hire other lobbyists. Of course, what? we're like any other uh, professional business where we do subcontracting. Okay. It's just like uh, an attorney or others. You might have, it might be that uh, a particular client needs, you know, a lot of extra attention and okay. it's a short-term thing. Maybe for a few months, maybe for the legislative session, it's not going to warrant a firm bringing on a full-time lobbyist yeah. who they then have to, you know, feed, if you will, after this client's gone. So instead, uh, you'll, you know, subcontract and bring somebody. So on when you sub work you. out, you have to identify that, identify the firm, absolutely, the class, and, yeah. and they're going to disclose. So you're going to disclose that you received X amount on behalf of your client and then you paid that subcontracted lobbyist and exactly what they work on. And then in turn, they disclose that you paid them for this client work and here's the bill or bills that you worked on in that regard. So yeah, I mean, everything is publicly available. And of course now it's all easily searchable on the Secretary of State website. And obviously you can look at both sides of the ledger, if you will, the lobbyist and lobbying firm and the lobbyist employer. Mm-hmm. And match it all up. So, um, do you think that lobbying is getting easier than it was before? I mean, with all the electronic disclosure, you can file online. You don't have to carry paper down to the Secretary of State's office, for example. Well, or do, is you it mean, getting harder? do you mean lob? Do you Just mean the compliance or or being the, or lobbying the actual mechanics of, of lobbying? Is it easier, harder? Has it not changed that? No, much? it's still a, actually a fair amount of work because what you have to do is is you have to track. Uh, what you're doing and what you're being paid and you have to confirm that with your client and that they're reporting the same information and and sometimes it is off a little bit in the in this regard Mm -hmm. so you do it every quarter right so january february march is the first quarter and your reports due 30 days later i.e at the Mm -hmm. end of april well you may have gotten uh your client may have paid you the last week of march so they're going to disclose that they paid you three months of a retainer, January, February, March. Okay. But the March payment, you got the first week in April. Hmm. So you're actually going to report that payment in your second quarter report, even though the lobbyist employer has it in their first quarter report. So there are those types of things that happen every once in a while that you have to make sure that 
hey, this appears to be a discrepancy. Mm-hmm. No, actually, they report it when they paid you, but when you received it is when you're reporting mm-hmm. it. And it's just and making sure that, hey, I worked on these 10 bills on your behalf. Make sure that you've got it on your report that your contract lobbyist worked uh-huh. on these issues. And certainly for the lobbyist employer who has perhaps somebody in-house, you know, a government affairs director, oh, yeah. a VP yeah. or whatever, you have to take a percentage of their salary that's allocable to the lobbying and their overhead, a percentage that's allocable to it. So there are a number of different calculations. Even full-time staff people on their employees of the employer. Well, often they don't, even though they might have like state government affairs director, they may end up doing some local government lobbying or maybe some federal. So 100% of their salary and benefits, for example, are not attributable to state lobbying. Uh Okay. It's those types of things. So the lobbyist employer needs to make those types of calculations. So I'm not saying it's overly difficult, but there is a lot of paperwork involved and you're subject to random audit by the FPBC. Oh, you are? Yeah. Have they ever knocked um, they, on your door and said, they hey, have. Yeah. They, thankfully, we got a clean bill of health. <laughs> I mean, I think we're very meticulous in, in yeah. all of that. And if anything, you know, make sure that you, uh, if you will, over-disclose in the sense that even if maybe you didn't uh, lobby on something in particular, you may it may not have been a a lobbying thing it may have been consulting or something like that you often just end up reporting it anyway so that there's no question down the road on audit that uh why is this payment not reportable but this one is do you do you you, um, do you have to attend those seminars that the fppc puts on as a condition of i guess being registered i don't know yes it's every two years every two years yeah okay basically most lobbyists do it um in the fall leading up to or shortly after the commencement of the new two-year session. Uh-huh. So you okay. have to do it basically every two-year session. Uh-huh. I've looked at the agendas of those, or at least some of the material on going through the the FEPC seminars, yeah. and it looks like you'd have to be a lawyer to understand the agenda, <laughs> much less, you know. Well, they get uh, the uh, the legal count, the ethics council from the Assembly and Senate. They get some practitioners who are political and election law attorneys yeah. uh-huh. to talk about it. But I think... If you've been through it once or twice, you pretty much know what it is, and they hand out a booklet that has all the gory details. And yeah. and candidly, the folks at Secretary of State are very helpful uh-huh. in making sure that if you have questions, they answer them oh, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. get back to you, because their goal ultimately, obviously, is compliance. Well, does it change yeah. that much every two years? No, not the no. The Political Reform Act hasn't changed much at all since 1974. I mean, there are tweaks here and there, but... Got it. Substantively, no. And mm-hmm. ultimately, the whole goal is the disclosure of the th- those three things that we talked about earlier. Now, speaking of changes, so a few years ago, there was the big Me Too, the mm-hmm. year of Me Too, and we said enough. Yeah. And I know that a lot of the folks affected there were lobbyists who weren't really covered by state disclosure laws and things. Has Did that substantively change the lobbying profession? I mean, obviously you're guys, so maybe it'd be different for you, but are you aware of people talking about that? Is that something that's come oh, up? Oh, I think there's there was tremendous talk in the fall of 2017, uh, and that has continued, and I think that most people are much more uh, aware of things and uh, sensitive about it. Obviously, the fact that several legislators had to resign their seats um, 
appropriately ratcheted up the attention, and I think people are much more sensitive about it. Uh, candidly, I was surprised by a number of stories that female colleagues told me, and I thought to myself, my God, it's 2017, it's 2018, and these folks have to deal with that kind of crap. Um, you know, that's an unfortunate thing. But I think everyone is very sensitive about it, um, again, especially in light of how prof- high how high profile it has been and the fact that, again, the number of legislators lost their seats, mm-hmm. that makes everybody sensitive about it, hopefully, and which they obviously should be. What's the relationship, if any, yeah. uh, between lobbying and campaigns? Uh, oh, God, I think they're, I mean, substantively they're vastly different, but sometimes I've actually analogized to being like a campaign manager as a lobbyist sometimes, because certainly most of us are, uh, <laughs> my analogy, using my analogy is like on the field and, and active, but sometimes I think a lobbyist has to step back and recognize that, hey, maybe I'm not the best messenger every time. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. you might have, uh, there may be instances where the client directly is the better voice <clears throat> uh, with an elected or appointed official. Um, sometimes the broader industry, represented by a trade association or maybe a group of individuals, for example, or a more powerful voice. So I also think that akin to a campaign that sometimes the lobbyist has to manage the lobbying campaign, if you will, and decide, hey, here's a time where we need some grassroots support. Maybe we need some media or PR aspect and not always be focused just on the day-to-day walking the halls of the state capitol. So I would draw some analogies between uh, political campaigning and lobbying, and mm-hmm. yet obviously there are people who are specialists in running sure. campaigns. Do you advise clients on political cam- – if you have a client um, – and for the client's interest, it would be good to have somebody elected as opposed to somebody else elected in a district or something. Do you, can you advise the campaign and say, hey, this would be the... Yeah, I mean, not every client, as you would imagine, uh, has any sort of political budget. And there are some clients who have a very small amount of packed dollars, and then there are some who are larger political sure. players. But for each of them, regardless of how much they can contribute, we certainly advise them on what's happening in, in races. You know, yeah. they may have... Uh, Uh, I don't know, a handful of facilities in the state. So obviously they would like to ensure that they have a good working relationship with their assembly member and senator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whatever it is, we certainly always uh, meet with the client, I'm sorry, with the candidates Mm -hmm. who are running for office. So as you can imagine, in the late fall and uh, this month and certainly next month, we will end up meeting every candidate um, who's running in the March primary. Many of them naturally are incumbents, but a lot of the new people who are who are running for office. What what's in it for them particularly to meet with you? What's in it for you? Is this a client education kind of a session? Here's a client education. Obviously, the candidates see it twofold. Uh, number one, you, if you're elected to office, you're going to be interacting with lobbyists sure. for different interests, and yeah. so why not develop that relationship early on? And that's beneficial to the candidate becoming the elected official and obviously for the lobbyist as well and certainly for those clients who have um, you know who make political contributions having their lobbyists Mm -hmm. say this is a great candidate or 
you know, advise on that is beneficial to the candidate as well. So, when when you were working on the book, and you mentioned people, I think we talked a little bit about before we started, but a lot of these names, people you talked to, are so familiar to us. Jennifer mm-hmm. Fearing, mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Oates on our board, Mike Madrid, mm-hmm. we've talked to for years. Sure, um, John Latimer, Aaron yeah. Reed, yeah. Um, did, what did you learn? Did you learn anything? Did anybody say anything that really surprised you? Even though they're you're a lobbyist and they're a lobbyist, um, did they say anything about when you're working on this that surprised you as a fellow lobbyist? And holy moly, I didn't know that you did that kind of thing. Well, I think with uh, each one, I I you know Ray and I were um, in a great position because we ended up reviewing everybody's chapter. You know, no one until now has seen each other's work. Um, and when we, when I ended up talking to each one of them, asking them, hey, would you be interested in writing a chapter for this book? Many of them said, sure, what sort of format do you have in mind and all that? And with each one, we said, no, no, no. This is not a, there's no cookie cutter approach to the chapter. Uh-huh. You write whatever you want. Here's the topic. We've agreed this is the, the chapter on X. That's what you're going to write on. And however you want to do it is up to you. And uh-huh. so I think one of the beauties of this is each chapter does not follow the same approach, and they're in that author's voice. Uh-huh, yeah. So as I said early on, um, one of the things that Ray and I decided we didn't want to do was the lobbying world according to Chris and Ray, if you will. Instead, it's the 40 authors and their view of things. Uh-huh. So you mentioned like an Aaron Reed. I mean, his firm's almost 50 years old. Mm-hmm. So who better? And there are lots of other longtime lobbyists. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, you know, who better than to write something about, you know, running a successful lobbying firm? Yeah. And it's written in Aaron's voice. So you're hearing directly from him. Did any of these and guys have experience. surrogate writers? Did they have like ghost writers or the, so we read this, hey, this is Jennifer Faring. Hey, this is Aaron Reed. This is Yes, that is, it, it, it's all them. Um, and you can see there are a couple of chapters um, that are written by more than one person. Okay. Yeah. Um, and one, the uh, ha- uh, running a successful small lobbying firm is uh, the folks at McHugh Kipke and Associates. Uh-huh. And there are four lobbyists, husband and wife team of Gavin and Sherry, uh-huh. yeah. Don, and then Naomi. And all four of them wrote it. Ah, okay. So there are... Kind of spread the guilt. Yeah, well, or either way. Um, So there are a few where there was collaboration on the chapter. Certainly Ray and I wrote a couple of them together. I co-authored a couple of them with other people. Um, So where there's collaboration, it's noted there. But otherwise, no, those Uh the chapters were written by those individuals, you know. Well, one last question. Sure. Uh, What would you say was the most fun you had as being a lobbyist? In your lobbying profession, I know it. I don't want it to sound too. Uh, I think. What sound I enjoy- how you want, because we can edit that out. <laughs> no, we'll, put the, we'll put our own words in. Yeah, too. It's my, okay. what my what I what I enjoy the most, I think, is where I'm able to help somebody. Uh-huh. I remember years ago that I had a client. <clears throat> we were lobbying a bill, and they said they were actually a. Uh, a medical provider to the mm-hmm. state. Yeah. And they the government affairs guy came to me one day and he said, "Hey, I I know you're not uh, lobbying for us on anything other than this bill, but you know, we've had this problem where for 9 months 
We've been owed money by the state of California. Is there anyone that you could call and see if you could, I mean, we're owed this money. And it was a sizable amount for a small business. And I said, sure, uh, you know, who, who owes it to you? And so, you know, we talked about it and I knew the department director. And so I called over and I gave him all the paperwork associated with it. And within a couple of days, the director had called back and she said, yes, we will get the check cut. I can't really explain what the holdup is. And cool. it certainly shouldn't have been nine months. And it was significant dollars for yeah, them. Totally. And they really had thrown up their hands like, we don't know what to do. And they certainly didn't have the wherewithal to, you know, like file a lawsuit or something yeah. against the state. Yeah. Um, but in a matter of days, I was able to dislodge a payment from the state that they couldn't get anywhere on in nine months. Yeah. And I felt great satisfaction like I helped somebody navigate through the complexities yeah. of California government and helped out. So... In answer and to they your question, their firstborn son after you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it went that far, but so I really enjoy. And of course, today I love the legislative process. I love the legislative branch of government. And to be, I was a political science major at UC Davis undergrad, and so I really love the process. I love the public policy debate. I, it's yeah. just fascinating. I learn something new almost every day in this job. The, uh, my colleagues that I get to interact with in the third house, the people at the Capitol, whether elected officials or staff, yeah. are wonderful to deal with. And just the challenges of dealing with a lot of issues. I remember years ago when I had represented a, a, a different transit association and um, I and another lobbyist had worked on the legislation to authorize bike racks on the front of buses okay. that are now... You see uh, every day, right? Ubiquitous. Yeah, sure. It's ubiquitous. Well, I Especially remember Davis. <laughs> my, my daughter who just graduated from college this past May, you know, she was in grammar school and she said, well, what, you know, what do you do? <laughs> and so literally a bus was going by and I said, well, last year I worked on a bill that allowed those bikes to be on the front of the cool. bus. And she yeah. said, oh, that's pretty neat. <laughs> that's so, pretty cool. <laughs> every once in a while you get to work on something that actually affects yeah. the average Californian. Well, we'll fix that. But <laughs> Chris McKaylee, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Sure. And I'm John Howard, and we will see you soon, next time around. Thank you.